Welcome to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. The experience of awe often pops up in unlikely places, or what we thought to be unlikely places. There you are one day, not expecting anything, and suddenly you find something wondrous in your own backyard. How could you have missed it? On this podcast, we are especially fond of these hidden wonders, tucked away here or there, very close to home. And that's precisely the contour of what we're going to be investigating in this episode. You see, if I told you I'd been snorkeling, you'd probably default to an image of me all salty and wet somewhere in the Caribbean or off in the Hawaiian Islands, or if I'd really been lucky, the Great Barrier Reef. But if I told you my snorkeling was just in the local river here in the Rocky Mountains, and maybe even just a couple of miles from my front door, well, I can hear you now. Wait, what? Uh, snorkeling in a river? Uh, what's there to see? Actually, a whole lot, as River Snorkeling Guide and science educator Keith Williams is about to show us. He's author of Snorkeling Rivers and Streams, an aquatic guide to underwater discovery and adventure. Let's set the stage for this. More and more of us in the United States are living in coastal cities and counties, but even so, more than half of us still live more than 50 miles from the sea. What this means is that most of us have easier access to rivers and streams than to the ocean. Why don't we ever think of snorkeling in our local rivers? It goes back to the question, what would we really ever see that can stand up to a dip in the Caribbean? Well, let me introduce you to the candy darter. A candy darter looks like something you'd want to hang on a Christmas tree. Imagine a fish that's mostly turquoise, but with bright orangish-red vertical stripes all down the length of their bodies, and their fins trimmed in turquoise and speckled with red spots to match those stripes, moving on to their heads, which seem translucent under those bright red stripes. All of this and the candy darter is only about as long as your index finger. They actually look like a species you'd see in a tropical lagoon, but these little guys are unique to North America. I knew Keith Williams had seen them in a river. I have not, I, and I just wanted to know where. Virginia. Just unbelievable. I mean, you know, the coloration on these fish, you know, that's the beginning. That's where I first fell in love with them was uh, that degree of flamboyance and beauty isn't supposed to occur in a temperate stream, right? It's supposed to be tropical reef, tropical coral reef. And um, they're rare fish. They're not common. And I, I learned of a population in a particular stream, and it's this tiny little creek, so unassuming. And you'll see that the common thread in river snorkeling is you look at things from the surface and say there can't possibly be anything in there that's worth sticking my face in the water for. And I really didn't have any expectations of finding them because they're so rare. The creek is so small there, I couldn't even get my whole body in the water. Half of it was beached on rocks. And as uh, soon as I stuck my face in water, there was this beautiful shot of color that went from one rock to another. And I just kind of slowly followed it down the creek and... Sure enough, that fish just stopped and posed, and it was this beautiful male candy darter, just incredible fish. Uh, and the, the beauty is just striking, but then the behavior is also striking, that this male just didn't care that I was there. It was his turf. And he let me hang out with him for a while and take pictures of him. You know, I've been in water with fish for 20-some years watching these animals, and they're not living on our terms. They're living in a completely alien environment to us. And those alien environments are right in our backyards. So you say they're not living on our terms, and I guess you get to see that in behavior. At least now you got me thinking about behavior. Uh, what can you tell us uh, about their habits? They're bottom fish, bottom-dwelling fish. Most of them are on the small end of the scale, just a couple of inches, and they dart from place to place, right? So they kind of hop along the bottom and dart from place to place. They've got these really big 
front pectoral fins, and they don't have a swim bladder, which makes them kind of interesting. So most fish have a gas-filled bladder that help them adjust their buoyancy up and down. Um, but they, they live on the bottom, so they really don't need that. That's kind of a wasted adaptation. They've evolved quite a bit, especially in the southeastern uh, United States. And so as a group of, you know, all freshwater organisms are pretty significantly at risk. Um, but darters especially, because they've been able to speciate so much that you might find a darter, one darter species, only one tiny little creek, one little drainage in Tennessee, and that's it. Keith Williams is going to tell us more about other fish well worth sticking your face in the water for. But first, I just want to reassure you, dear listener, that Keith's approach to freshwater snorkeling is really just about as easy as pulling a mask and snorkel on and then bending down or lying down, face down in the water and and just waiting to see what happens. You could, in fact, simply carry a snorkel and mask in your backpack while you're hiking along some river and occasionally slip it on, lower your face under the waterline. Voila. With that alone, you've already got a sense for the basic nuts and bolts of what it takes to do this. It's like going on a nature hike underwater. It's really simple. Um, And you just wait and see what kind of life comes out. And, you know, it, it emerges relatively quickly. Things in the water get used to us being there, and all of a sudden we're looking at all kinds of life. It's very unconventional because when, when people think of a river or stream and activities that you can do in a river or stream, snorkeling is not on their list. You know, most people, when they think of snorkeling, they automatically think of a tropical reef setting, not, not a freshwater setting and certainly not a temperate freshwater setting. <laughs> I've got to chuckle a little uh, just imagining people who might come across you and wonder, what on earth are you doing? That's got to be a pretty common occurrence, I'm guessing. Yeah, there have been multiple times when I've been mistaken as a body because I'm, <laughs> I'm not very active. I'm typically sitting in one spot just watching life emerge around me. And if I have my camera, I'm even less active because I'm just kind of holding the camera out in front of me, taking pictures and just kind of blending, trying to blend into the river, into the background of the river. So life just kind of comes out. I understand when I'm snorkeling in a suburban area, something that's more visited by people, I try to make more motion, right, to make it obvious that I'm not dead. I've had people in suburban areas yell down, are you okay? And I, I wave and they go off. I was in the middle of uh, Pisgah National Forest, snorkeling a creek, and I hear this rustling through the leaves, and I'm thinking, that sounds really big. Is that a bear? Is that a deer? What's going on? And I look, and here's this guy running down the bank, thinking I'm a body. I scared him as much as he scared me. (laughs) (laughs) How much area do you cover? How far is a typical trip if you're guiding folks? And, And do you generally move downstream as the main default? Yeah, it really depends. My, my normal trip is we just pick a spot in the river and stay there. So we're not covering a lot of territory. Uh, the goal is not to get downstream miles. It's really just to experience the life in the river uh, on its terms where we happen to be. And so we typically, you know, when I scout for a trip, I usually pick a spot that's got a little bit of current, but not a lot, some great life to see. And it's maybe just a 50 yard, a 50 yard stretch of stream. Really? And that's about it. We'll just stay right there. When he's guiding a group, Keith considers currents and water quality. He also brings along somebody to lifeguard those fish watchers. And with all those important details taken care of, it's faces in. Usually once I turn people onto the first fish, then all the other fish become obvious. And then it kind of transitions from we're noticing, but then what do we wonder about this stuff? And then the awe piece comes in. How are they living? And why are these male sunfish so brightly colored with this amazing red breast that cuts through the water and advertises their presence. Uh, And what's the answer there? Why would sunfish have red breasts? Fish put on amazing breeding colors, often like male birds in the breeding season. And so those sunfish, the males, the long-eared sunfish are the ones that we were seeing, but multiple species of sunfish do the same thing. 
they just get this brilliant, bright red, orange breast. And, you know, their sides are just these incredible turquoise lightning bolts uh, across an orange cheek background. And, and that's all for breeding, for attracting the female, but also for advertising to other males that this is my turf and stay away. And one of the most amazing and entertaining things to do is watch these male breeding displays and how a male sunfish will court a female sunfish and at the same time, shoo away any other competing males. I just love the names we've given to some animals. Yellow-bellied marmot, red-naped sapsucker, and now Keith has introduced me to long-eared sunfish, which I have to tell you don't actually have ears, but if you Google them, that moniker is going to make perfect sense. There's a flap covering the gills that extend backward against the body, and they could easily be construed as an ear if we didn't know any better. But I had a different question for Keith. Can I go back just a little bit here? Uh, when you described the candy darter that you were watching, you said he posed for you. I would think that just being there would scare fish away, which obviously is going to ruin the whole deal. I mean, after all, you're kind of an intruder here. and I just imagine... You have to be kind of sneaky, maybe. And, well, I'm imagining myself, a first-timer trying to do this. I know I would, I would be antsy. This might sound a little weird, but I think rivers and streams and the organisms that live there can sense that. In rivers where I'm feeling nervous, I don't see much. In rivers where I'm really relaxed, all of a sudden, all this amazing life comes out. And so we don't belong there. And that increases my concern about the amount of care that we give that creek in leaving no trace underwater, right? Following leave no trace principles only in an underwater setting and making sure that we're not doing harm. I just had this experience in Oregon. Chinook salmon were up in a river spawning. Chinook are the, the big, beautiful salmon. And I really wanted to get pictures of these beautiful animals reproducing, but they had their nests from bank to bank. The female will, will beat a nest into the gravel, and then the male will fertilize the eggs that she releases, and the eggs settle down into the gravel, and they're easily dislodged. And so I could have made the choice to snorkel out into the middle of that river to get pictures of these amazing beings that just went through this incredible journey from the ocean into fresh water. It's one of the most hopeful stories in nature, I think, in spite of their steep declines. And I could have snorkeled over those nests easily and gotten some amazing video footage and amazing stills, but I would have risked washing those eggs out of those nests. And so that's an example of constantly recognizing that I'm a visitor there, right? Keith, it's one thing to know that best practices require of you minimal interventions. You're not going to disrupt it. You're not going to get in the way of that life cycle that would destroy life forms. And that makes sense from a, just the, how to proceed as a technician, you know, as a professional. But there's an element beyond that professionalism about just being a human in that space with that creature. You know, when I was a scout, I remember going with Jerry Carpenter, a friend who was several years older, took us young kids out to the Grand Canyon. And he said, take only pictures, leave only footprints. And it kind of embedded in my own mind something that, that I can only describe as reverence. And that's what I'm getting at here. I'm, I'm wondering if you can describe for me beyond the fact that you don't want to harm the ecosystem and its inhabitants, is there something else that kind of holds you, holds you back some? Yeah. Reverence is a really good word. I have nothing but the most profound respect for the life that's there. And I, I feel like that life is as valuable as my life, that we are all part of this system. We're all part of this amazing planet that's been put here for us 
to store, to take care of. And in the case of those fish, those Chinook salmon, I mean, they just went through this most arduous journey to get back to their natal stream where they were born. And now they're having their babies and they're going to die. They're dying right there in front of me. Um, it's a one-way trip for them. It's much more than, you know, worry about their precipitous decline. And I'm going to contribute to that by snorkeling over the red and, and washing eggs out. It's just a deep, profound respect for them as beings. You know, they're another being here. Like we are a human being. They're a fish being, right? They're beings. They're more than just objects. Um, they're, you know, they're subjects. There's something you need to know about Keith Williams and the various hats he wears. His life goes beyond just being a part-time river snorkeling guide goes beyond his training as an environmental biologist and a science educator. He's also a part-time EMT. And a little later on, we're going to be hearing from him about how those various occupations collided or, or converged for him in a very dramatic way. But for right now, this EMT experience, I think that being so close in that role to uh, human life and death, that enables Keith to appreciate life and death as it relates also to non-human beings. And to show you what I mean, I asked him to tell me a story about one particular female Chinook salmon that he encountered on another trip to Oregon. One of the most profound experiences I've had underwater, uh, Jeremy Monroe, who's the director of uh, Freshwaters Illustrated, let me know that there were a bunch of Chinook salmon that were spawning in the Elk Creek tributary to the Mackenzie River, which is in the Cascade Mountains in the middle of the Willamette National Forest. So um, beautiful scenery, just incredible in the, in the middle of the Cascades. The Mackenzie River runs about 45 degrees year-round, just this beautiful turquoise water. And the Elk Creek is a smaller tributary to the Mackenzie. Um, and we were snorkeling with some adult Chinook who were, uh, were spawning. It was November, so it's an overcast day on the verge of rain, you know, typical Pacific Northwest cold fog kind of thing, surrounded by these amazing, um, you know, incredible forests that just cover the Willamette uh, National Forest and the Cascade Mountains in that area. You know, I'm just enjoying being in the moment and hardly even looking through the camera and taking pictures, just reveling in what I'm witnessing and, and knowing the incredible journey that these fish just went through in the course of their lifetime, being born in that spot, going out to sea, maturing, living out there for a couple of years and then coming back in again to spawn again. You know, so I'm laying on this in relatively shallow water, about a foot, and my body creates an eddy downstream, right? So it's still part of the river where there's not much current. I've been watching this female and, you know, these fish are like zombie fish at this point because they're literally rotting alive. Their bodies are falling apart. Fins are falling off. The female tails are all beaten white because the females lay on their side and use their tail to beat the gravel into that shallow nest, into that red. And so, I mean, they're literally just gray and white, not very attractive looking fish at this point in time because they're dying alive. Their last act is to have that next generation. And this one female just gives up, is done, drifts downstream, comes up into the eddy that my body is forming into the lee of my knee, right? Just downstream of my knee and dies right there. And I could see it. So if you ever read Aldo Leopold, he describes a, a pivotal moment in his life when they killed a wolf. I think he described it as the green fire goes out of the wolf's eyes. And that was when he realized that we were managing our ecosystems, nature in the wrong way. And I saw the same thing happen in that fish's eyes. I witnessed the life go out of her eye. You know, a lot of people look at fish as these lowly beings and, you know, the eyes are emotionless. But I don't agree with that. I've spent enough time watching all these different kinds of, of species of fish to recognize that there's so much more to them than just the emotionless eyes. 
But then there's more to that because that fish in her death is providing nutrition to the rest of the ecosystem. So even in death, there's this hope that she was out at sea and in the process of being out at sea, put on all this biomass and brings all these nutrients into the freshwater ecosystem and into the terrestrial ecosystem up in the Cascade Mountains. So nitrogen and phosphorus, and now all that additional biomass, all that additional energy, the nitrogen and the phosphorus that she incorporated from the ocean, she just transported hundreds of miles into this beautiful old growth forest that's now going to be incorporated into bears and other scavengers, into the trees themselves that will then support those salmon going forward. So it's this, this incredible, intricate reciprocity. Okay, if we're going to be talking about reciprocity here in this story, I get the, you know, the water to land direction, how the fish are gobbled up by the bears, the bears fertilize the trees with their scat. But let's go uh, land to water, the other direction. How, how do the trees adjacent to a stream support the, the, the fish, the salmon? Yeah, so the trees support the salmon uh, a couple different ways. One, shaded water, which is great. And that tree sooner or later is going to fall over into that river. And that does two things. One is it's going to create this large woody material, which is critically important habitat for both adult and juvenile salmon. It also create clean gravel beds as that root mass tips up, which the salmon need to spawn on. And that deeper scour hole creates different flow velocities, different depths, things like that, that are really critical for salmon fry survival. 50% of the food that feeds the stream comes from the forest and vice versa, right? We get these insect hatches, these aquatic insects that spend two to three years of their lives as these aquatic nymphs, and they hatch into these winged adults, and then they disperse throughout the forest. Um, and there's been some amazing research done by Dr. Mary Power looking at these spider webs. And the spider webs next to the stream are small because they don't have to invest the energy because there's so much insect biomass coming off the stream. And then the further away from the stream that you get, the bigger the spider webs get because they have to invest more energy to catch the food that they need as one example. So there's this interplay of energy that goes between the, the forest or the, the terrestrial ecosystem and the aquatic ecosystem. There is no line there when we look at energy flows. And it's this, this incredible intricate reciprocity that's built into all these systems that, you know, it just makes me wonder, how could this possibly be all by chance? You know, Keith, this issue of reciprocity is a, a really great thing to reflect on. It kind of strikes me as a valid way to describe any ecosystem, perhaps. But I know that you're, you're not saying that the natural world, I hope you're not saying that it's just a bunch of stuff in the food chain holding hands, singing kumbaya, you know, all sweetness and light in the food chain. Uh, maybe you could weave in a little Darwinian thinking here about competition, if you have any of that for us. Uh, did Darwin allow for this uh, reciprocity? It's um, survival of the cooperative rather than survival of the fittest. Both things are at play, right? We know that natural selection happens, but even Darwin himself recognized that cooperation was as important as competition. Freshwater mussels, depending on eels, right? So elliptiocomplinate, eastern elliptios are some of the most abundant freshwater mussels that we have in our East Coast rivers. You know, they look like a clam that lives on the bottom of a river and they produce glycidia, which are not fully developed juveniles. And those glycidia need to live parasitically on a fish 
for about a month. And then in the process of that, they go through a metamorphosis and they become a juvenile muscle and they drop to the riverbed and they become an adult. And so different muscle species sometimes are so specific that they require one particular fish species in order to have their babies, which is one of the reasons why muscles are some of the most imperiled freshwater organisms we have on, on the planet. If something happens to your host fish, then you're in trouble. Well, eastern elliptios are more generalists, but there's a relationship between American eel and eastern elliptio. Those glycidia get put into the water column, and in the case of eastern elliptio, it looks like cobwebs. And as the eels swim through the, the cobble on the bottom, they get the cobwebs of glycidia all over them. They get infested with glycidia. They're making a migration upriver, right? So the net flow of the mussels is going to be downriver because of current storm events. The eels take all the babies upriver. They mature in the process of that migration, drop off and become adult mussels and basically repopulated the upriver piece. And so it's, it's this cooperation between the mussel and the eel. Neither one is harmed. Um, but the muscle is gaining territory, basically. In the case of salmon, it's the sculpin are eating salmon eggs, but then the salmon are eating the adult sculpin. So it's this cooperation, reciprocal relationship kind of thing. Keith takes his groups out on snorkeling trips. That's with his outfit called Freshwater Journeys. But also, he often goes out all on his own. And in the summer of 2020, he spent a month kayaking down the Susquehanna River. That's the longest river in the eastern United States. 444 miles from its source at Otsego Lake in upstate New York to where it empties into the Chesapeake Bay. At the journey's end, media awaited him there to get his story, and a fireboat even honored him with a water cannon salute. This river, the Susquehanna, is so shallow, it's considered non-navigable for any substantial commercial purpose. And even if you're Keith in a small kayak, you just can't float it all, and you end up portaging a lot. I saw one of his posts on Facebook expressing sincere gratitude for all the strangers who often came to help him at any number of those portages. Did I say 444 miles? I think I did. That's a long, long river, and you take help wherever you can get it, I think. Well, Keith became intimately acquainted with this waterway, not only because he spent every single day of his trip there, but nights too. And that meant he was always scanning downstream for islands that looked hospitable, welcoming enough at least for a solitary traveler. You have to know here that the Susquehanna has hundreds of islands, many of them privately owned, some are designated as parks, but some of the smallest ones aren't even named, and Keith says they can't even be considered permanent features of the geography. Some are little sandbars and some are much more sizable and substantial, a couple acres, and each one of those islands has its own kind of feel to it because each one of those islands is formed by this incredible force of water, but they're also dissolved by the incredible force of water. So you can have a flood that would create a sandbar island out of nowhere, and then in another month, another flood come along and either completely rearrange it or eliminate it. And a lot of those islands are very temporary, right? So these are very ephemeral places. And you really, at least I really felt that ephemerality. I could feel the the force of the water because you could see the trees that were completely gnarled, these ancient trees on the head of the island that took the brunt of the force of those floods and all the debris that would pile up against those, those trees and those flood debris piles would still be present. And just each one of them had this really special feel to it. You can kind of feel the history of the river in those islands. So if this is such a dynamic system, and you mentioned the change and if the ephemerality of it, what does that, all of that change, what does that do to you? What does that mean for you? 
You know, I think it puts things into perspective for me that we're ephemeral too, right? <laughs> we like to think not, but we're all here temporarily. Um, and so what do we do with the time that we're given while we're here? Um, it just kind of puts things into a bigger perspective that we are part of a, something that is much larger than we are, both in times of time and scale and scope and geography. Even a sleepy, sluggish sort of river has obstacles, dangers, hazards to negotiate. Apparently, Keith wasn't left to his own devices in this, at least not entirely. He found that he could watch a particular duck species called merganser to help him read the river. Once he had figured out their patterns of behavior, he could follow their lead to get where he wanted to go. They're beautiful. Um, they, they have this uh, orange crest. So they've got this crazy-looking hairdo, right? The orange head with this, like a rust-colored head, with their feathers sticking straight back. So they kind of look funny. But huge families of these. I mean, it would be a mama duck, mama merganser, with 20 or 30 babies following behind her. And I was kayaking in August, July and August, on the Susquehanna, really low water levels. And so that was my challenge, was finding adequate water to get down through these shallow parts. And I learned if I followed the mergansers, I'd find the water I needed. And I snorkeled my whole way down. So I would stop frequently and snorkel, and then I would get back in the boat and paddle. And, you know, I was taking in the surficial stuff, the people and birds, uh, eagles and herons and mergansers and kingfishers, as much as I was taking in the organisms beneath the surface. So did you just kind of like clue in all of a sudden that where the merganser is is where I want to be too because it's likely to be going to the water? How did it lead you there? You know, it just made sense. You learn how to read the water and you look for different signs in the water that tell you where to go and where not to go. If you've got an upstream pointed V, that's a rock. You've got a downstream pointed V, that's where you want to go. And I noticed that all the mergansers were going for those downstream pointed Vs. So I'm like, I'm going to follow them. And sure enough, the whole trip down, They led me. The water was deep enough for my kayak to float over so I didn't have to get out and pull. In just a moment, we're actually going to head upstream to a time much earlier in Keith's life. I wanted to hear from him about whatever people or forces or influences shaped how he's come to think about his place in the world, the work he does, and the good he might accomplish. Environmental ecologist Keith Williams is author of Snorkeling Rivers and Streams, an aquatic guide to underwater discovery and adventure. He's a passionate advocate for freshwater habitats and their living inhabitants for our better understanding of these and for their inherent wonder. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. You know, sometimes you can point back to identify a handful of people or events, as well as certain places from earlier years, even going clear back to childhood, things that really left a mark on you. Keith has memories like that, about how seeds were planted for his later interest in ecology. I invited him to paint a picture for us of the place where he grew up, you know, his neighborhood. It had this little inconspicuous creek flowing through it. It was this tiny little stream in uh, suburban New Jersey, Colonia, New Jersey. It was called the Pumpkin Patch Creek, and um, I didn't know it at the time, but it was significantly degraded. This is pre, pre-Clean Water Act days, right, to frame it. So it was still perfectly fine and legal to dump oil into freshwater bodies, um, raw sewage. This creek didn't have raw, raw sewage in it, thankfully, because I played it in every day. That little ditch held so much magic for me as a kid, and that magic was in the form of the life that still existed there. All the crayfish and the black-nosed dace and the banded killifish and the suckers that I interacted with almost on a daily basis. 
um, it really was this incredible place and still is. Uh, and I happen to know that your very first experience snorkeling was not in that little tiny trickle of a stream. So how, where, where did that actually happen? One of the, my first snorkeling experiences um, was in a lake in New Jersey when we were camping. And I was afraid to stick my face in the water. And I'm standing on this rock in water that's over my head with my dad. And I have a mask on and a snorkel. And he pushes me off the rock. So I have to, so I have to swim and put my face in the water to see. And there was this, this amazing jungle of aquatic vegetation beneath me, loaded with fish. And that was really my first exposure to snorkeling a freshwater ecosystem. It was probably when I was eight years old or seven years old because my dad gave me the courage to experience that. I've heard you say that there was this woman, I think a German woman, who was something of an unconventional, uh, maybe a mentor for you, and she kind of opened your eyes, at least, to your surroundings. Who, who was this? Who was she? Directly across the stream from where I lived was this woman's name, uh, Mrs. Beck, and she, she was a German immigrant. She escaped Nazi Germany, and her and her husband homesteaded in Colonia before any of our other houses were built. It was just her and her husband on a two-and-a-half-acre patch of forest that they you know, cut the trees down and, and milled into the lumber that they used for their house. And the way we met her was her husband died. And all the moms in our neighborhood were baking cakes for Mrs. Beck. We knew that they were doing that in response to the loss of her husband. And so the neighborhood kids decided to go over and see if she needed any help with her two-acre garden. Um, and I, I think we were more of a hindrance than a help. Uh, Mrs. Beck taught me how to see nature. And, and a big part of that was not seeing nature as separate from us, but a part of us, that we were part of that. And we actively participated in all the cycles of nature. We would be in the garden and I would be out there helping her turn the garden over. And we'd be having this conversation about the importance of leaf mold and that smell of compost and how this is death, but it's life. That sticks with me to today. Whenever I smell compost, I immediately think of Mrs. Beck. I always joked that I learned ecology from Mrs. Beck and then went to college to prove it. <laughs> As an undergraduate, Keith studied environmental biology, and because he liked marine biology and field work quite a bit, he sought out opportunities to snorkel in oceans the world over. And through all of this time as a field biologist, he kind of forgot about his childhood freshwater snorkeling until he saw river webs. That's a documentary that tells the story of Shigeru Nakano, Nakano was a superb Japanese field biologist and the person who's credited with pioneering freshwater river snorkeling. Well, seeing that documentary led Keith to consider the possibility of poking his own face into a nearby river. And so after many, many years from that day when his father pushed him off the rock into the water, he goes down to a local creek as a grown-up. And the way he describes what happened, well, he apparently had some real hesitation whether to actually try out this Nakano-style freshwater business. I kind of imagine him standing over there uh, vacillating a little bit like that, that kid of earlier years. It's like, why am I here? What am I doing? You know, I never really thought about what might be beneath the surface of my local river and stream. And so I went to Elk Creek in Elkton, Maryland, the head of the Chesapeake Bay. From the surface, it didn't look like there was anything there. And I really debated for a while whether I was going to put my face in the water there because it's a pretty dilapidated stream at that point. There's a huge stormwater outflow right there. So, you know, when water hits a, a hard surface, it, it has to run off. It can't soak into the ground. And so we, we put that water into storm sores and we channel those storm sores into rivers. And I'm standing right where one of the biggest storm sores enters the stream. And so all the yuck that accumulates on our streams winds up in the river right there. There's litter all over the place. It doesn't look like a very healthy stream from the surface. 
I, I debated for a while whether I was going to snorkel that or not and stuck my face in where I was blown away by what I saw. First thing I saw were common shiners. And as the name indicates, they're one of our most common fish in our rivers and streams. And, and there was a huge school of them. There were probably 50 fish, 50 common shiners right there that from the surface, you couldn't see them. And so for starters, I was blown away that there were even fish there to see because from the top, you know, their, their backs are all brown. And so they blend in with the bottom perfectly. And then you look horizontally and all of a sudden you see all these gold and silver sided fish. And in the springtime, this was in the fall. In the springtime, they are some of the most colorful fish that we have because all the males put on this amazing breeding color. So we were talking about, you know, candy darter colors earlier. These fish rival the colors of candy darters when they're in breeding color. It's just unbelievable. Um, and so, you know, a school of 50 of these fish just zipping all over the place. All the rocks were covered in rockweed. So this really brilliant green kind of an alga, just like a moss that's covering and it's just setting the whole riverscape. That brilliant green color is growing on these really clean orange cobbles. And then we've got these elvers, the small juvenile eel coming through. And then there were darters that were hopping over the bottom. And so in a short amount of time, I saw, you know, five, six different species of fish from a completely different perspective. All the time that I spent in rivers and studying rivers, it was always on my terms where I would dip a net into the water and I would take the net out of the water and I would examine the fish or the insect in air, right, in my room. And this first time when I, when I experienced those organisms in their aquatic realm, I saw them as from a completely different perspective. The beauty of those fish was unexpected and the behaviors were unexpected. And I was immediately hooked. Hooked by a fish. Now that's a switcheroo. But his passion for whatever he can see through his mask, it plays out in a pronounced commitment to science education. I really don't know that I've ever met a more articulate and sincere spokesperson for uh, any particular ecosystem, I'm not just for fish, but everything surrounding the fish, the rivers, the streams, the, the algae down under the water, up to the tops of the trees nearby. That makes Keith my kind of a preacher, my kind of a guy, eager to, to speak about how things are far more closely connected, far more interdependent than we generally appreciate. I mean, the more I learn about the science, the more uh, awestruck I become. You know, there's, there's a, I think, a flaw in science education. When I was trained as a scientist, you were taught that you had to separate yourself from whatever you're studying. And if you don't do that, you're going to entrain bias into your study. And, you know, it's totally true that we want to eliminate bias from scientific investigations. It's just not possible. You know, you, you spend time with something, you're going to become attached to that. And you, the important thing is to recognize what bias you bring. And then in your analysis, make sure that you're accounting for that bias. Um, and, you know, scientists time and time and time again have become really significantly connected to the objects that they study. And so the objects are no longer objects. They become subjects. They're other beings. I mean, we become connected to them. And that same thing happens to me, that I will get into the scientific literature and I'll be reading a study about a particular species or a particular ecosystem and be amazed by that. And it just makes the snorkeling experience that much richer because I know the science behind it. As I've gotten to know you, I have realized that you often find wonder where most of us generally would overlook it in some of the smallest natural phenomena. So let's talk mayflies, if that's all right with you. What a cr crazy, crazy, fascinating life cycle for these creatures. Not really flies at all flying up in the air where we are, They, at least not for very long. They start out as aquatic. All their physiology is keyed in on living in fresh water. They don't have lungs. 
They don't have a way of breathing air. And then they go through this incredible metamorphosis and they emerge with wings, with trachea, right? Basically a respiratory system that can take oxygen out of air. So they convert from being able to extract oxygen from water to being able to extract oxygen from air. And they essentially become masters of the air when just a short time ago, they were masters of the water. Some of the mayflies, it depends on the species, are top predators on the bottom in our rivers. You know, when they emerge as an adult, they're not so much interested in eating, they're interested in finding a mate. And a lot of species of mayfly don't even have mouth parts as an adult because they live for such a short amount of time. Their, you know, their scientific name is ephemeroptera, ephemeral, it's perfect fit. But there's a beauty there. There's a beauty in their design. Um, if you look at a mayfly adult and the venation on their wings, they're like stained glass windows, but the daintiest of stained glass windows. Just incredible beauty. The function that comes out of that beautiful form just amazes me. They've got the males have these really long tails and really large front legs. And that's what they used to hang on to the females. And during the hatch, when there's, oh man, millions of these individuals that are out, especially on our larger rivers that are significant threat still from poor water quality. Uh, the one river that I'm most familiar with, the Susquehanna, has this enormous mayfly hatch, you know, to the point where bridges sometimes have to be plowed in June to get the mayfly carcasses off the bridge so that deck doesn't become so slick and cause car accidents. And so they certainly present a nuisance. If you're living in a river town along the Susquehanna, you can wind it with piles of mayfly carcasses in the morning if you lift your porch light on. So I understand the, the aversion. But at the same time, the Susquehanna is a constant threat for water quality issues, and it's far from pristine. And yet here they are, these symbols of good water quality. Every year, here they are. There's hope there. Mayflies as a symbol of hope. That's something my inner poet can follow along with fairly easily. But the thought that these same minute insects could convey any real hope when the backdrop of the story is deep human tragedy? We're going to take you there next here on Constant Wonder as our conversation continues with freshwater snorkeler Keith Williams. These ephemeral creatures we call mayflies once showed up at an unforgettable scene in Keith's memory and experience. To say that this scene was poignant is just not enough to describe what happened. I mentioned earlier, you may remember, that Keith wears a couple of hats. He works part-time as a river snorkeling guide and educator, but he also works as an EMT. These two worlds collided for him one day when a five-year-old boy drowned in a nearby waterway. And um, I was the first paramedic there, and I had my, my snorkel gear in the truck. Uh, this little boy rode his scooter off the dock, and they couldn't find him. And so here I am with my gear, looking for this boy's body, um, you know, doing something that I love doing in a really horrible setting. Um, and I found him. He was under a finger pier in about 10 feet of water. And I brought him up and started advanced cardiac life support. And then two other paramedics showed up and we tried for a long time and we weren't successful. And so that river took a life, that river that I loved, right? 
took a human, a young human life. But I went back to that spot where he drowned after we cleared the hospital. I was there by myself, sitting on the end of that dock, and there's no malice in that river, right? Malice is something that we make up as humans, I think. A horrible thing happened, and that was it. It wasn't the river. River just, river just was. And I just sat on the end of the dock watching the sun go down and watching the mayflies hatch, you know, coming up out of the water and doing their thing. And nature just went on. The river just went on. And that just, um, you know, it's still a hard one. Um, and I think that'll be one that will stay with me until the day I die. But uh, in that moment, I recognized that we did everything we possibly could for that little boy. And we did everything we possibly could for his family. And the river just did its thing. So I see in you somebody who thinks about the beauty and the hope of life forms and death is part of the package. And somehow you bracket all the way from our human experience to what mayflies are doing and maybe a dying female salmon. That Those death stories are not ultimately for you, um, how should I say, they're not a cause of despair. Um, yes and no. I mean, in the, in the, they're hard, you know. Um, but ultimately, we're part of this, I hate to say thing, we're part of something that's much greater than us individually. Thinking back to those reciprocal relationships, we're part of those reciprocal relationships too. And so we, we go on. We're part of that bigger system is, is part of it. You know, death, death is sad for us. I'm not sure if it's sad for the person that died. We certainly miss them here in our realm, but where are they next? And I, I think that one of the most sacred things I get to do is be in that space of death. And as a paramedic, I do that fairly regularly. And I work really hard with my colleagues to keep that from happening, but it does. And when I'm in that space with a loved one that just died and their family with them, I think that's just one of the, the most sacred spaces I could ever occupy as a human being. And I think it's an honor to be in that place, as difficult as it might be. An honor, you say? Yeah. So, you know, you're with, you're with somebody that's dying. And I'm working really hard to keep that from happening, right, as a paramedic. I'm not... Usually, not just sitting there watch it unless they're, you know, they have a do not resuscitate order, which is pretty rare. And so we're working really, really hard to keep this person from dying, even though it might be their time. And when I'm in that space of death, right, of somebody passing, while it's an uncomfortable place to be and part of me feels like I failed that person because I wasn't able to stop it, Part of me is honored to be there at the same time, right? It's a very sacred transition that that person's going through. I don't know what's next after this. I just know there's something else. You know, we're nothing but energy, and energy you can't create and you can't destroy it. And that energy is going to go somewhere else. I don't know what that somewhere else is. And that's just what I believe. And so it's a privilege and an honor for me as that paramedic to work really hard to prevent death but in the inevitability of life, death is going to happen. And when I'm in that space, 
of somebody dying, I just feel very privileged to be in that transition space and to help that person get through that along with their family. So you and I are humans and that's a species and we probably identify better with other fellow humans than we do say with spiders on the side of a river. But having said that, the quality of the respect and the honor that you feel and you have emotions that you might be trying to live through or process or whatever in that space of a human death, is there a similarity? Is there something in common with that dying female trout and you're being present for that? Yeah, there's definitely something similar, maybe not as intense, but certainly similar feelings. Like the light went out of her eyes and she drifted off down the river, but that was not her ending. That was the start of another beginning for her. The other end of that spectrum was in the case of that one female salmon, there were still other salmon that were still spawning right on that spot. And so I was watching the creation of the next generation and the ending of the one that was currently in play. And so I'm witnessing this full circle um, and the same thing applies for EMS. You know, we experienced that full circle. I had the fortune of delivering a baby in the field and helping to bring a life into this world. And, and I've had the, the difficulty and the privilege of seeing life go away. It's one thing for you to have these kinds of encounters that you can then talk about with somebody like me and, and share what happened. It's another thing to really kind of calibrate or observe what's happening inside your own person or what the effect of these experiences on you we've described it as honor and reverence you've talked about it, that sacred space do those encounters permanently alter who you are and and does it involve in any degree awe or or wonder i don't know if it, if it changes who i am necessarily but it certainly changes my view on the planet on life on my worldview so i guess that does alter who i am um, and awe and wonder are all throughout that. That's what keeps me going back into rivers. That's what got me in rivers in the first place was this sense of every time I stick my face in a creek, even if it's something that's such a common water body that I, I see every day in my travels, I'm always struck by something I didn't realize was there or something that I knew was there, but what's that odd behavior that's doing? And so there's this underlying um, not even underlying, it's woven throughout everything is this sense of awe. I can't uh, get past how, um, here's an example. So the first place I snorkeled was one of the most uh, impacted creeks in my region. And one of the first things I saw when I stuck my face in that water that first time was a juvenile eel, an elver. They're tiny. And that fish made its way back into that stream from the Sargasso Sea. So the Sargasso Sea is basically the Bermuda Triangle, which is where we think baby eels come from. All the adult eels go into the Sargasso Sea and the babies come out, but we don't know what happens in between. So right there is this huge piece of awe, is the unknown. That in, in today's world, you think that we have all these scientific things worked out and we have all the biology figured out and we don't, which is to me just, I want to say awful, right? Full of awe. <laughs> it's just incredible. It's great. And then here's this baby that made her way all the way from the Sargasso Sea, all the way up the east coast of the Atlantic Ocean, all the way up the Chesapeake Bay into this tributary on the very tippy top of the Chesapeake Bay. And how did she do that? How did she know to get back to this spot? It's just awe. And then, then the wonder that comes right behind, right? The awe is just recognizing the significance of that organism in that space, in that moment. 
And then the wonder is, well, how did that happen? How do they know how to do that? How did she start life? And every time I go in a creek, there's something like that that happens. Just recently, I was in a stream two weeks ago, freezing cold here. And I'm looking at these tiny little rock cornucopia, tiny little things, maybe a half inch, made out of, out of little sand grains. The most colorful selection of sand grains imaginable, just reds and blues and yellows and oranges. Those are caddisflies, right? Another aquatic insect that cements these cases together from the, the existing sand. So there's the awe is, wow, look at the beauty of that. How amazing is that? And they're building these things to protect themselves when they pupate. But then the wonder is, well, why are they selecting these really showy sand grain colors when the background noise is, is brown? And yet they're selectively picking out the quartz and the, you know, the oranges and the, the reds and the little blue grains of, and it's mind-blowing. And these are just, you know, basic insects that you see in every stream. So awe and wonder are all throughout that, and it really keeps me motivated to keep going back. A transcendent experience of awe will keep you going back. And I'm grateful that Keith Williams returns over and over again to his rivers. It's only natural for him. You can hear in his voice that he's thrilled by everything he encounters out there, combined with what he studies and learns, and this insatiable appetite of his for wonder has resulted, um, well, I'm just going to say it, in some of the best fish tales I've ever heard. He has an inspiring story for just about every point he makes. It goes without saying, today we can only bring you a smattering of all that he has to offer. But you can check out his book. He's author of Snorkeling Rivers and Streams, An Aquatic Guide to Underwater Discovery and Adventure. We have a bonus feature coming up for you in just a moment. Keith Williams once again describing a, a hopeful situation of wildlife conservation along the west coast of the United States. Thanks for joining with us today for Constant Wonder. This episode was produced by Tenery Taylor with help from Jenna McMartin. Sound design provided by Addie Mangum and Kevin West. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. Keith Williams recently returned from a trip to Oregon, and what he was able to see there is well worth hearing about, and of course a great fit for our podcast. Here are a few extra minutes for you with Keith Williams. So I saw a whole bunch of, of juvenile steelhead trout. So steelheads are basically a migratory rainbow trout, and uh, these were sea run. They spend uh, their adult lives out in the Pacific Ocean, and they come up into these tiny little, relatively tiny little coast range streams, and there were a bunch of, of steelhead babies, uh, par, that were in these streams. And that's just such a, such a sign of hope. Steelheads are going away. There's, I think, uh, every population in the country is listed as endangered or threatened except for four. And the Oregon coast population is one of the four that are considered not threatened or endangered under the Endangered Species Act right now. So it's pretty scary being with a species that is just so beautiful and so powerful and agile and just watching these little babies. You know, they're only like an inch and a half, two inches long. And just watching how they masterfully play a really, really heavy current because it poured for two days before I got to the rivers. So it, everything was up. Let me jump in here just briefly, Keith, uh, because I, I want to know what these babies were doing in the river here, you know, during the winter time. So they start out as those baby steelhead or really any kind of any kind of baby salmon. 
start out as eggs that were fertilized. Uh, you know, the female emits the eggs and the male emits milk. And so the egg and sperm meet outside the fish's body. Those fertilized eggs settle into clean gravel, right? So that's the key is the female creates this uh, nest called a red. And it's basically, she's beating the sediment out of the way to provide this clean gravel. And those eggs settle down into the interstitial spaces of, the, of that clean gravel. And then, you know, they develop after a relatively short amount of time, maybe a week, maybe two weeks, they start absorbing the yolk sac, they become these tiny little fry, and then they become par. And so a par, probably about an inch and a half, two inch long fish, they've got these, these bands, these vertical bands on the side of their body that indicate they're a par. And they're, they're doing fish stuff. I mean, they are feeding actively, they're predators, which is what the adults are. They're just on a smaller scale. And so they are, you look at their eye and you see them evaluating you and making a decision, is this a threat? At the same time, they're watching the current and they're watching for food to come down in that current that they're going to feed on. And so it's this executive function that's going on in these tiny little fish that's kind of mind-blowing because, you know, most people, when you think of a fish, you don't think of executive function. But I could see it. There's active decision-making going on. They're watching me. They're watching the rest of the current. And they're these little athletes. I mean, this current is really hauling. And they're just using these micro vortices, just these little subtle changes in the water velocity and the current to maintain where they are in the river. And their little tail is beaten frantically sometimes, but their head is perfectly still. And there's just incredible athletic ability in these beautiful fish that have this red band going down their side. And they've got these beautiful vertical bars and they've got gold tips on their fins. And they'll do that for about a year. And in the process of that, become they become a smolt. So a smolt is a bigger fish. It's probably about six inches now. Changes their coloration, right? They've got a lot more spots in the case of a steelhead they lose the vertical bands, and then they become an adult. They, they head out to the ocean as that smolt. So smolts will out-migrate into the ocean. While they're in the ocean, I think in the case of, of steelheads, five or six years as an adult uh, in the ocean where they put on mass by feeding in the ocean, and then they come back into the freshwater streams as this beautiful, large, often just an incredible chrome silver uh, fish with a, a red band down their side to start the process over again. And like the salmon, is that the end of their cycle? No, actually, for steelhead, they can they can spawn multiple times. Their spawning run is not their last often. A lot of times the steelhead will will spawn and then go back out to the sea and then come back in again another year. You know, that as a species, they are declining across North America. But this particular population is still stable and and they're making babies. And that's just, you know, the beauty of the of the fish is awe-inspiring. And then the knowledge behind that and what that means gives hope. <laughs> 